This is an aside, and I probably won't make the podcast, but so you, you probably don't remember a fellow called Bob Newhart, but he was a, his American comedian was initially I on remember. the radio. He was initially on the radio, and that I don't he remember. has a wonderful skit where, <laughs> where he talks about being the person responsible to go. And there's an old, you know, axiom that if you give an infinite number of monkeys typewriters, they'll type Hamlet. Uh, and so he was the person responsible for going around and looking at the infinite number of monkeys and seeing what they'd actually done. <laughs> and he, he's actually reporting back and he says, he goes to station like 15,003 and he said, uh, I think we have something here, to be or not to be. That is the Gajunta site. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't happen with ChatGPT. It basically um, gets it right to some, to some degree. Welcome back to UVA Data Points. I'm your host, Monica Manny. In today's episode, we're looking at the past, present, and future of artificial intelligence in higher education. To explore this topic, we're featuring a conversation between Phil Bourne, the Dean of the UVA School of Data Science, and Jeffrey Bloom, the Associate Dean for Academic and Faculty Affairs, also at UVA Data Science. Jeffrey and Phil discuss the recent trends in AI, and they look at how this will impact the student experience, the faculty and staff experience, and the research landscape in higher education. So with that, here's Jeffrey and Phil. Uh, hello everyone, I'm Phil Bourne. Uh, I'm the Dean of the School of Data Science here at the University of Virginia. Uh, I'm also a professor of biomedical engineering. And hi everybody, I'm Jeffrey Bloom. I'm the Associate Dean for Academics and Faculty Affairs here at the School of Data Science. I'm a professor of data science and I am a biostatistician by training. So let's start off, we're here to talk about the future of AI in higher ed, which is a pretty broad topic. So, you know, Jeffrey, you're responsible for the programmatic activities of the School of Data Science. Let's start there. I mean, how how is AI embedded in the curriculum, you know, either undergraduate, graduate level, both? And how do you see that changing over time? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there are two levels here that 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 I can touch on very broadly. One is what our curriculum looks like. So how are we training people to build AI tools, to interface with AI, to evaluate those tools and go through um, and think about those things. And also just the impact that um, the advances in AI have had over this last year, for example, ChatGPT, on how we deliver our material, how we run our classrooms and how we evaluate and test students. Um, and the, the latter is, has been the big change. Uh, the school is developing and putting its curriculum together in many ways, and we're trying to keep up. But since, the, since ChatGPT has got here, I, I have never seen so many courses and assignments and thoughts about how we teach and what, how we deliver material uh, has just changed from uh, virtually every instructor has stories about this. Students are openly asking how they can use ChatGPT uh, either in real time in the classroom or on exams or for homework or to learn. Um, and uh, there's a wide variety of responses. Uh, it's just been fascinating to see how people have dealt with it. Um, and it's, it's, really, um, it's been really just interesting to sort of walk through this transformation and it's a major transformation in the classroom. Yeah, I think, you know, more generally, it, it, it has created an absolute ripple through the fabric of education. There's just no two ways about that. And 
I, I think it'll be interesting to see how it evolves. I mean, I, I think it, from the point of view of me being a dean at the sort of leadership level of the university, you know, I've been talking about the AI and the impact that it's going to have for you know a number of years, and uh, it just didn't have the urgency that suddenly it's hap has now because of uh, the likes of ChatGPT. And you know, when I think about why that is, I think it's really because it's there in everybody's face, and it's there in a way that is both exciting and disturbing. So, you know, the generative part of that, the fact that it's generating language that, you know, can effectively can pass the bar exam or can, you know, certainly uh, undertake an AP biology test, uh, write an admissions essay for the university, uh, university entrance. This is, this is pretty groundbreaking. And so I think that's part of it. The other or almost nuanced piece of it is the way it does it, the way that it actually types out letter by letter what it is that you see it actually makes you think that behind that curtain is, there's somebody that, there there's someone there and you know i think that 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 leads to a level of disturbance so the good news is that it's got us as a university uh really trying to determine how best to utilize this i think there's the general feeling across the board that this is an asset it's not a threat uh, it could be a threat if used uh, in nefarious ways, uh, but that's that's been around for quite some time. We could certainly talk more about that. But if you think about where it could be an asset, uh, it opens up all sorts of possibilities. The trouble is that it, while that it's, still, it's being that asset, it's also disruptive. There's no question that it's disruptive to all stakeholders. Uh, you know, we, we talked about this at a different podcast, uh, Ken Ono, who's the provost advisor uh, on STEM. And the, watching the chat as we were doing that, the kind of questions that were coming in were from all stakeholders. You know, students asking what the expectations were with respect to how it would be, how these tools would be used. Uh, there were parents asking, well, what's the, how's that going to affect my child's chance to get admitted? Uh, it just, it was, you know, and then there was, how, there, was there were faculty who were saying, well, how do I accommodate this uh, in my classes? And then, you know, there was, how do I use it, uh, likewise, in, in research? And what does it mean to my research? So, you know, it, it affects every stakeholder in the higher ed ecosystem. Now, the amount of disruption is really incredible. I mean, even at a basic level of what you teach and how you teach it. Um, I, I do want to say one funny story is I think students feel a little bit like it is a little bit cheating because they're asking somebody else. Um, whereas students, when they have a take home exam, for example, in my class, they felt comfortable because um, I, I told them they could do research. They felt comfortable doing research with a Google search and looking for answers and pulling some things out and distilling it. They didn't feel comfortable using ChatGPT, even though ChatGPT is doing almost the same thing. Um, and part of that is because they, it's uh, personified, I think, to some extent. Um, and so um, I, for instance, I had a chat with my class about what's in bounds and what's not. And I, I just told them, go ahead, that they could use anything and they could use ChatGPT uh, as, as much as they wanted. And I, um, most of our faculty have actually taken the same stance. And in fact, we have some faculty who actively gave homework to go to ChatGPT to ask ChatGPT to solve their problems, and then to go back and figure out whether or not the answer was correct, 
and in what sense it was correct and why or why not. So we're already uh, really trying to uh, get this new tool rather than seeing it as a cheat sheet, but as a new tool for doing research uh, and for helping students develop skills and getting some instruction. We're already trying to do to, to work that. I think faculty are actively trying to do that, to work that into their class. But that requires revisiting all sorts of materials. So the types of homework, the type of road homework that you used to give uh, here to practice um, is almost, um, I think it, it's hard to figure out where to work that in now because that can get solved very easily. And then the students don't gain the benefit of thinking through and building those that muscle memory or that brain memory about how to solve the problems. They could just ask ChatGPT to solve it. They almost do better is if you ask them to ask ChatGPT first and then have them evaluate whether or not ChatGPT does a good idea. So it's really changed. Yeah, no, I think that's really the right attitude for how to how to approach this. It, it seems to be the consensus, as partly I said already, within the university leadership that that's exactly how to approach it. We're waiting for the results of a task force that uh, is, is going to report over the summer uh, that's been interviewing a large fraction of the stakeholders of the university. But I, my suspicion is this is what, what's going to come out of it. And as a tool, like any tool, you need to recognize what it can do and what it can't do. I, like you, I was giving a class on um, responsible uh, research. Uh, it's all about the ethics of research and so on, which of course this touches. But I actually used ChatGPT to ask me a definition of what it thought <laughs> was, uh, you know, responsible research. And it did. If you look at, if you highlight, which I did, the, the elements that it came up with, they're exactly the things that were already in the syllabus that other lecturers had talked about. And they were what I was talking about. So all of that was that was good. It, it sort of created a, a new starting point. And I think that's that's what tools often do, right? They create this new starting point from which where you can advance forward. So I think that is very exciting. The downside was the, the hallucination that everybody talks about is I asked it to uh, chat GPT to give me a set of references uh, that uh, are seminal in the, in the study of this field. It gave me 10 lovely references. I started Googling them to look them up. Not one of them was real. And made there, everything there, up. there was nothing real about what it pulled up as a reference to the work, even though it's clearly got through, you know, a lot of things that relate to particularly the, the likes of Wikipedia, had got general definitions. But it, it, it wasn't scholarly in the way that, uh, you know, you expect out of your students. So it gives you that starting point, at which point the student is then still left to, uh, to go and research the literature around what ChatGPT has said. So that's kind of the next incremental step in this. Of course, with every version, it's going to get better. So uh, the, you know, it's, I think a real challenge is, is going to be moving us as teachers and as students moving fast enough to keep up with the, the pace of the improvement in these tools. And, and, and thinking about interacting with it differently, right? Thinking of it as a giving you a draft and then you're going to revise it, but that just because it shows up on the internet doesn't mean it's correct or even what you want. Uh, so the, the same hallucinations come up. Uh, so I tested my midterm. I gave a take-home midterm and I tested it by running it through ChatGPT. And it did great, except it had lots of those hallucinations. Uh, so it looked like, I should say, it looked like it did great. 
except that uh, there were a lot of empty functions, functions that I said compute the James Stein estimate. It would say, okay, get dot James Stein estimate, but there's no such function. So it understands that you want a thing and you need a function to do it. Um, and it can help you set up some structure, but otherwise than that, it can't. And it actually took me longer to get ChatGPT to get the code right by giving it very specific examples than it would, it was twice as long than if I had just coded it myself. So it's not quite at that point where it's, it's super efficient and ready. I, I think it will grow into that so that ChatGPT is gonna be I, what I think of as a research calculator in the same way that we use a calculator to do arithmetic and we don't emphasize a lot of arithmetic as much now, but we enter, em emphasize general concepts. Um, I think ChatGPT is gonna be more of a research calculator for people to help people distill information to get a sense or a place to start. Yeah, I think that's true. And, you know, I think the interesting thing is it touches every discipline. It, this isn't confined to STEM or anything else. This is, this affects the humanities, the social sciences as much as it affects, uh, it, you know, what we've been doing traditionally. And I think that also, of course, relates to what we do in data science. Maybe we'll come back to that in a minute. But I think thinking about it as a tool in these less traditional fields, it just clearly changes the way you learn. I mean, already we're in a situation where, if, say you're a historian you're, and you're studying some aspect of history, you're going to, uh, you know, you're going to use Google to find uh, documents, but then you're actually going to read those. And you still, because a lot of that stuff is still not digitized, you're going to have to go to special collections and all, all sorts of places to actually get to that content. Clearly, this is the, the, the sort of inverse driver of this is the power of these tools means that more and more material is going to be digitized to be embraced Clearly. within the tool. So, you, you know, these special collections will, and there's all sorts of copyright and other things going on here, of course, but putting that aside, you're going to start seeing all of this. And so you can do the most amazing things. You can suddenly, the starting point is not you going and pouring over a manuscript uh, on a very specific topic. It's really an accumulation of manuscripts within the framework of a, a generative model that is, is your new starting point then you might dig into specific aspects. So you've really, what's happened is the efficiency by which you're working, the, the rate of discovery, presumably, will increase. And the way you go about it will also have changed quite dramatically. And that is, I think, where the excitement is in all of this. And just, I mean, when I think about, I started using various aspects of AI in biomedical research many years ago. That's essentially what happened. It's just now it's suddenly become on steroids. Yeah, I, I mean, I also think in terms of the learning model, it's really accelerated the learning model. So you might imagine that the students would first need to take a class before they could be a TA and check other students' work. But with, that, with what ChatGPT is doing is essentially turning every student into a TA. So if you ask it the question, you now have to know enough to evaluate the answer. And the students aren't quite there yet. We haven't quite prepared the students to switch into that role. And for a lot of students, switching into the role from a learner to somebody who it can be more of a teacher and help other students is a big step and, and takes a lot of synthesis of material and confidence and, and ability to think through and practice. So you think about, well, what is right? How do I evaluate this? I'm sort of flying without a net. And the way we teach now, we sort of don't let students take that role on yet. 
And uh, part of at least what we're doing in the school and in our active learning set is to try and do exactly that, to get people working in groups. But ChatGPT almost forces this now um, so that the students now need to do that practice to learn those masteries outside of that and then come and, and do these things. So I just find that it's accelerating the demands on the student related to the subject material very quickly. Um, and it's, 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 it's totally changing uh, how we do student evaluations, uh, what choice of materials we want to teach and how we present that material and all sorts of things. It does make me question uh, the situation where the, in some ways the student is ahead of the faculty with respect to uh, this kind of adoption. Because I think about active learning, which is, you know, in a sense what you've been describing and how that is, is caught on. But, it, it, you know, a lot of faculty are slow to change. And at the same time, the rate of change within these, as a result of this kind of tool, uh, is is pretty dramatic. And I think that in terms of who does best at higher ed going forward, it's really going to be thinking about how we embrace this and being prepared, not just for the fact already we're we're looking at this. You and I are talking about this retrospectively. This tool's here, right? Yeah. What we're not yeah. what we're not talking about yet is what is the next tool. So what is the next thing that really is going to, and of course that's very hard because we don't know what it is. And even those who are researching the field don't necessarily have a very good handle on that. But clearly there will be other advances and it won't just come from uh, you know, AI per se, it'll come from other types of technologies that feed into this. The use of virtual reality, for example, which still is not really used much in the classroom, but that that's clearly going to change over time. So it's 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 a it's a new world and very exciting and somewhat daunting. Yeah, I could totally imagine a virtual classroom where students could be home and um, they could join a class, so they wouldn't feel like they're the only person. Maybe there are other people, and there's a short. It's a short class, ten minutes, and they learn a particular topic. Whereas people are watching YouTube videos for this now, they might do it as more in a social way by everyone doing things through virtual reality. And then the interactions might be run a little bit by tools like ChatGPT. I think the major advance for me in ChatGPT, the big stunning advance is the ability to communicate in what it seems like a very common language and easier understanding. So you used to go to Google and you used to get a whole bunch of things and you'd have to go through them. Now it's all condensed in a way that you can read and understand it and get to it and feel close and feel closer. There are trade-offs with that. I mean, you're trading some volume and some sensitivity for specificity there in your results. But I, I think those will then, those sorts of things are now gonna translate probably into the classroom and the student learning experience. So I think students will be learning more, or I hope students will be learning more outside the classroom. And the classroom will be more about synthesis and how you figure out what a right answer is in this particular context, or how do you think about it, and less about rote practice. So we're sort of moving from rote practice to more higher level function in the classroom. And that's what's exciting, but that's also, I think, when you say faculty are slow to change, it's very hard to redevelop you know, a course to catch up with that because all your materials and frameworks are for building, you're smiling because you've done it, you know, or building as you move things through um, to bring the students to some, some certain place where they understand everything. And now that's just been accelerated 
and I also think it forces the faculty to come out a, a little bit from behind the lectern in a, you know, in a figurative sense. They, they uh, have to do more of an apprentice and less, here, just learn this, learn this, learn this, here are my slides, but here, let me take you through the learning process, you know, and let's evaluate this as a group. And that's a very different interaction as well. I'm actually smiling, not because of that. I'm smiling because uh, you're defending your faculty, which you should, and I, and I, of course, I should too. But I, I don't do anywhere near as much teaching as they do, or or, or you do. So, it, you know, uh, you're absolutely right. It, it, it it's to be fair to the faculty. Uh, it, you know, it's a lot of effort to re refactor for, uh, under these circumstances. I think it'd be useful. You know, we've talked a lot about how the how AI affects uh, education in higher ed. Let's just talk a little about research and and then administration, which are the other two things that mm -hmm. we uh, spend a lot of time on. So let's just talk about research. I've you know my own research. I am just particularly excited about what happened. I work a lot at the molecular level, and uh, about two years ago, the the, the breakthrough of the year, according to Science Magazine, which is you know, a reputable source, uh, was uh, an AI model that actually could actually uh, predict the structure of a protein. This has enormous ramifications uh, with respect to uh, how biology advances, because with the ability to, uh, you know, because from those structures comes function and, and so on. And that affects everything from food production to transport to obviously health. So it, it's, it's really changed. And it, it I wouldn't say it casts aside, but it requires significant retooling of experimental methodology that was in place to do exactly what an algorithm can do now. And it can only do it because it's got so much data to learn from that was derived from experiment. So in, in a way, I, I, to say that uh, it, put, it put these folks out of business by virtue of what they'd already done is not fair, but it changes the model of how things get done. And uh, so it has, you know, real amazing ramifications. And I think uh, it changes the, the research method as well. Uh, if you look at, you can go and look in any uh, bibliographic database, and you'll see the number of titles of papers that's, that mention AI in some form has just exploded uh, as this just takes hold across, the, across all of scholarship. So it, it, it's affecting all of our research. Uh, it's certainly completely. I, I think I have mixed, I have some mixed feelings on how it affects the research. I mean, uh, so I guess as a statistician, I tend to be a little bit of a reductionist. I find it helpful to have a simpler model that generally describes nature, but that may always not be correct. And I think that that has its limitations in your case for protein folding. Um, and, and when you take a, a approach that can really search the entire solution space and figure out all the solutions, um, that's certainly one that's, that opens up tremendous amounts of uh, avenues for research simply because we hadn't learned yet. It, even if there were rules that governed all those cases or we didn't understand them, you would know sort of better than I. But, but now all of a sudden you have all these extra proteins and all these other structures to explore, whereas before you weren't able to get there from that smaller reductionist model. So there's a real trade-off in thinking and we, so we, we keep going to these bigger and bigger and bigger solution spaces. And I, I, 
you know, I begin to wonder, can you even get through all these things? Can we test them all? I mean, how, how much are, you know, what sort, what's the research look like now, right? I mean, is there, is every, are, is every protein gonna be generated in a lab and, and tested for different things? Are there too many? Are we do, using it for guessing about what's the right molecules for here or there? It does sort of change us from, can we do it? Would this work to, okay, if this should work, how many of them should we do, right? This is a whole uh, podcast unto itself. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I, I would just say a couple of things about, well, one thing mainly about, about this that I find really intriguing is, and it relates to human versus machine. So, in, in, in as, as it relates to this field, I mean, everybody recognizes the double helix of DNA, which, of course, is a precursor to protein. And that is an iconic view. And the reason we have it is because that's how humans can actually really comprehend uh, what they, you know, this very complex molecule. Right? And it's just, it's just a useful, very useful shorthand for doing so. The problem is that after a period of time, you start, because you're so used to working with this kind of representation, you actually begin to think that's what it's really like. And it's what I call the curse of the ribbon. Uh, proteins have more of a ribbon diagram, but it's the same concept. And on the other hand, an algorithm is just absorbing many, many features and uh, essentially you know, exploring that feature space and coming up with answers. So in a way, by the human act of, this is a theory, the human act of reductionism through this creating an iconic and simplified view of a molecule has actually made it harder for us to see the big picture of what's really going on. And, th and then this AlphaFold 2 is this algorithm that first you know, really had the major breakthrough, it is able to do that. Uh, and so, uh, you know, you, it, you start to question whether the, the scientific method, which is very much aligns with reductionism, under these circumstances when you can absorb an ever-increasing amount of feature space by virtue of the amount of data you have and the amount of computing power that's forever increasing, it, it begins to change how you think about how you do science. I, I, no, I'm just thinking that the, exactly that. I mean, what are the general lessons? What are the broad strokes? What are the rules that hold almost all the time? That sort of goes away, right? For a lookup table, if I want the answer to this case, you tell me the features and I can go find out exactly to that case. But there's no general pathway through the solution space to that answer from one place to another. But the same thing's going on, interestingly enough, with on the um, biomedical side with clinical prediction models. So I do a lot of work there, in particular in lung cancer screening, where we want to know who do you screen because who might develop lung cancer. And we have some general rules. So you smoke a lot. Oh, you may be, get lung cancer. You're older, you may be susceptible. You may have a genetic history, you may be susceptible. But there's some broad rules. And we haven't quite um, gotten to the point where we can do this very highly sophisticated giant models. We can run them, but I don't know that they predict all that much better what the lung cancer risk is. Uh, and we're also struggling with, well, what are the features that we put in those models? Um, but clinical prediction models are getting more and more and more complex for exactly this reason. And you lose some of the medical flavor of, you know, if you're older, you might be a little bit more at risk for cancer for, uh, you know, and because you're taking into account of all sorts of other trade-offs. 
you know, maybe you, you live somewhere where there wasn't a lot of air pollution. So you have less uh, exposure to fine particulates in the air and that reduces your things. So um, we're still struggling on, on that side about putting those together. And those solution spaces are really ginormous because everyone's their own. You, you know, you're trying to do almost personalized medicine at that case where you're trying to predict people's risk. And there you can see the shift is coming from uh, having a few easy uh, factors to check, say in a clinic, right? Are you over 55? Are you male or female? Do you smoke? Okay, I'm gonna screen you to let me calculate your risk according to some model. And if that calculation is high enough, then I'll screen you. So we're sort of going from this easier space to a sort of what is your risk? And risks are hard to estimate and hard things to get a, to get a sense about. Um, and it's interesting how the similar phenomenons are growing into other areas and impacting. So that's really changing a lot of what we're doing on the research side, all these advanced tools for for prediction, there's a hunger for data, right? So as soon as we figure out how to get into all of and combine lots of everyone's medical records from different places and things, which is a problem unto its own, um, the I think you'll start to see much, much more advanced uh, risk prediction models for the person that aren't necessarily disease specific, but that are for you, what are the types of things that you'll eventually might run into or might be at high risk for? As you were talking, I was I was thinking about what it is that drives us into research in the first place. And in my own case, uh, I don't what well, I ended up in data science, but my PhD is in chemistry, in uh, in physical chemistry. And I think it was in high school that I was really taken by the periodic table. That here was this thing that there was such order in the universe, and I just as we're but you know that had been discovered by you know, uh, a bunch of people, Russian scientists in particular, um, you know, w working and poring over this and discovering new elements and adding them to, the, to a model that worked. And then I think, well, how would that, how would that discovery happen now? I mean, if you mm -hmm. knew, uh, if you knew the atomic number and the, and the properties of all these elements and you said, build me an, organization, an organized chart of, of, of these together, I, I wonder whether it will come up with a periodic table. The, oh, yeah. the, the issue, of course, is that it, 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 I'm sure it would now because it already knows what a periodic table is. But you know, this, the, the ability to be facilitatory in all of this is, you know, it, you know, I might have gone on to do something completely different if ChatGPT had been around when I was in high school. It, it would have told you what that <laughs> what it is. I wish ChatGPT was around in high school because I didn't like chemistry <laughs> and I had a harder time in chemistry. But the 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 organization that's there, right, in chemistry, sort of advanced over time, um, and you can see it too. Yeah, that's sort of fascinating. Yeah, I, I was. Mean, it's yeah. kind of the building block of everything. You you know you. You look at the, the properties of those elements as they sit in that table and that defines so much of what actually happens in life and and whether it's you know, it's, it's synthetic life or you know uh, or something synthetic or whether it's uh, human life so let, let's turn to uh about administration because i i oh, think okay I, there you go yeah so i mean one thing that i noticed for example i use chat gpt to help me write so I, I don't think of myself as a natural writer. Um, and when I have really important things to present um, or I want to have very clean language or I want to make sure my purpose is, is plainly made. And sometimes, you know, as administrators, you have to send emails that are very clear 
um, I'll I'll have ChatGPT edit uh, them, and and I'm not the only one uh, I know, um, but it is um, fantastically helpful. It's on demand. It's fast. Uh, I I used to use the thesaurus a lot. I don't use the thesaurus anymore. I I just use ChatGPT. Yeah, uh, it that, it's happening. In fact, you know. The president of the university, Jim Ryan, was saying, you know, part, part of his convincing of this fundamental change is he asked ChatGPT to write a mission statement for the University of Virginia. Uh, and it did a pretty good job. <laughs> actually, he said it did a better job than he did. But uh, I'm sure it actually, uh, this goes back to the periodic table example, I'm sure it actually pulled a lot of what he'd already had to say about yep. the mission statement of the university. It, so, it, you know, from the ministry point of view, it actually defines the inst- it's 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 potentially facilitatory in defining the mission of the institution itself, all the way down to everything that that could possibly happen. I mean, you know, we're 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 very we're very much focused on generative models, but there's there's so many other aspects of uh, what AI can do, particularly as it relates to, and you already alluded to it in, in the sort of data integration space. Um, you know, the example and you know, one example I like is the notion that there's the interrelationship between uh, a, a student's health and well-being and their grades and, mm-hmm. and trying to be predictive in uh, and catching early where they're having uh, significant problems by changes in their, you know, m- even minor changes in their grades. This opens up a huge ethical can of worms with respect to what should be looked at and what shouldn't be looked at. But, you know, the, the, the idea that potentially you can help the student and their performance. You know, this comes into the whole precision education piece of it. Um, but it, you know, there's a lot of administrative function here in the sense that the student records uh, and the student health are all kept in administrative resources within the university. Uh, and you know, we're. I, I remember saying to the president again, Jim Ryan, when we were forming the School of Data Science. And he was congratulating us, and I was saying, well, we only need a reason to hire the people we're graduating because we're not really in the university, and this is not a criticism of UVA, it's, it's very general. We're not actually using a lot of these tools right now to actually improve the, 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 the university experience, both for, student, for all stakeholders, parents, students, faculty. Um, and clearly, that now with this kind of interest in these tools, I think that's going to start to happen. Uh, it's, yeah. So for us, it's already starting to happen on a couple of levels. I mean, we still do the old the old approach to this, which was to have a student review meeting where you invite the student's advisor and you invite all the faculty and you run through the students and you see how the students are doing. They're OK. But we're also through our student affairs um, working on um, setting up uh, dashboards that uh, are based off student records. So that you can indicate, hey, the student hasn't turned in homework. So in our online program, for example, we wanna catch students who consecutively don't turn in their homework so we can engage really quickly. Um, uh, we um, uh, are building dashboards so that we can check mid-semester grades. It would be great to even be able to roll in some um, you know, interim performances if we can have them. We're slowly putting this together and that dashboard is looked at as well by people in student affairs who um, understand who the students see um, and talk about how they're doing, you know, their life. Are they having a good time getting their job? Are they enjoying the, you know, 
Are they are they um, engaged in the program? Do they feel welcome here? All that sort of information can all get into one place. Um, and some of it we can automate, but some of it requires, you know, a, a human touch. Um, and that human touch, I think, is, is important. But the ability to almost like having electronic health and electronic academic record that was broad, that you pull everything together and you can see how the student's doing would be great. And right now we have lots of separate academic records that we use to do that. So um, it would be fantastic to pull these things together and go, you know. I, I will say, so one thing for the on the administration point and using ChatGPT, so is that um, I think as administrators, we have to be careful. It's easy to use it, but it does, I feel like, lose the personal touch. And so I have been trying to figure out how to take the help on grammar and style, but maintain who I am in my email for that connection. Because we do a lot of communication through email and people do, even though they do tend to read the email and the tone they're in at the moment or mood they're in, that, that connection I think is very important. And so it still does take, ChatGPT still is very generic um, and will probably go on being very generic, but it's important, I think, to connect. Well, the scary thing is, or the thought is, that sooner or later, uh, it also detects your emotional state at any given time and responds in accordance to uh, not just answering a question or you know, providing some text, but it's doing it in the context of your current mood. I'm making this up, but it's clearly... I think it does that a little bit. Yeah. I mean, there was the guy from New York Times who um, convinced ChatGPT to fall yeah. in love with them. Just yeah. There were lots of prompts, and some of that was some emotional feeling, and it eventually picked up. I mean, this is not new. I mean, they've been trying to use these yeah. tools to actually gauge when someone calls a helpline uh, mm -hmm. to try and gauge you know, what the likelihood is that they were going to, uh, you know, basically do some damage to themselves for example and you know it's it obviously huge dangers with, with with this but potentially you know value to society which of course is is what what we're all about but just sticking on the administrative thing I was just I mean one of the fears in all of this is that you know jobs are going to go away and just I was just thinking as you were talking about some of the administrative aspects I just see it creating, in some ways, creating a lot of new jobs, but a lot of different jobs, right? Mm -hmm. So the idea, and you know, again, there's lots of nuances and uh, ethics associated with this, but part of the joint, uh, the developments that are going on are not just in these tools, but also in things like sensors. So, you know, the presence of people in, in certain, so, you know, you'll, and we know this already, it happens all the time. You go into the cafeteria and you buy something, you know, it, someone, something knows that you've been there. And, you know, you have more and more of that. But, you know, how you use that information effectively to improve, the, for example, the student experience um, so that, for example, that there's always enough spaces for people to sit and do, you know, this, all of these kinds of things that, you know, we right now we don't really uh we kind of are very retrospective, but trying to predict. So trying to, for example, predict new how you, what kind of buildings need to be put up to, to respond to uh, these kinds of changes. Or to be ready. To be, yeah, yeah, is, uh, you know, that creates a whole new industry. I also, so, th I also think on the administrative side, you, you, as, you were, as you were talking, I was thinking, you know, I do have a number of people I work with who are all very good and will all help me write and craft things. Now I can ha have them help me be strategic 
about what is the message that uh, I really want to send and how do I help people get on board with that message and how do I move the team in that direction. So we spend more time talking about how to help people come together and what exactly we want, how to be strategic, than we do sort of writing the memo. So I, I do think it's an advance, but you, you, have to be, you have to be cognizant that you're going to be more purposeful with your message there. Yeah. Well, maybe we should think about wrapping up at this point, but I have to yeah. say, well, first of all, it's been a great conversation. And, it's been fantastic. Uh, you know, I, I think we, we have a, a different but exciting future in front of us. And, uh, you know, I think universities and higher ed more generally uh, have really got to be prepared for this. We didn't really talk about preparing the students coming into higher ed for, for this. And that's, that's probably a whole other podcast, but uh, exciting time indeed. So thanks very much. Oh, it's been fantastic. It's fun to talk about these things and uh, it's a pleasure to be able to just uh, think about what the future holds. Thanks for checking out this week's episode. To stay up to date on current episodes, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next time.